this is episode 25 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, introducing a character that will be crucial to Matt Murdock. Hold on to your sides because it's time for the first appearance of Electra. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the internet radio show covering the many adventures of Marvel Comics' man without fear, Daredevil. I am J. David Weeder, but as usual, you can call me Dave. This week, we continue the year-long Frank Miller read-through with a hugely relevant issue. I mean, this one's kind of a big deal. But before we dive into that issue, let's do a bit of a recap of where we've been as we hit these big, big points. Turning points, if you will. We began this read-through with the five-issue miniseries The Man Without Fear, where Miller revised Daredevil's origin. I covered that for the tone and the massive amount of callbacks we'll be making to it, especially in this episode. Also, because it is the last entry into Miller's Daredevil resume. And I like the irony of beginning with an origin, which is the final installment. It seemed especially fitting since Miller wrote The Dark Knight before year one. Next, we covered a sequence of stories from the marked-for-death trade, mainly for my own sentimental reasons. We also saw Frank Miller kind of develop through that and begin to seep in from, you know, going from the house style to really being Frank Miller. And then between now and then, uh, there was a trio of one-off stories where we saw Miller become more and more prevalent as a creative force on the book, and it has all led to this. The issue where Miller takes over as writer and penciler, and the stuff of legend. In terms of Daredevil issues, it really doesn't come much bigger than this issue this week. I mean, it's one of many iconic covers from the run, and one that stands out even in this group of covers. This week, we begin the true and honest Frank Miller Daredevil coverage with Daredevil issue 168, an issue that will have us returning to the pages of Man Without Fear to ask the question, what the heck happened when Matt met Elektra? Does it mesh? But before we get down to the nitty-gritty, I have a few shout-outs to make, if you will. Indulge me. First off, to Bill Robinson and Paul Spataro, who answered a call for a favor, uh, just one I can't tell you about yet, but I asked for something odd, and they came back with a resounding yes, without hesitation, and that is awesome. And also to Michael Bailey for kind of the same reason. Again, this is all stuff you're going to find out down the road. All I will say in the interest of self-promotion is that episode 50 will be a great birthday card for Daredevil. My next shout-out goes to Mike McClarty, who gave the show a shout-out on Twitter, and called it one of his favorites, along with Sean Engel's Just One of the Guys. Now, Sean was kind enough to have me on his April Fool's episode, where we actually did an episode about Dallas and Dynasty. So, big shout-out to Sean as well. And be sure to catch that episode on the Two True Freaks feed. Harder to say than you'd think. On the same day, Trentus Magnus released an episode of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, where we shot the... A lot of topics were covered in that episode, some pertaining to this very show. So if you want more of me teamed up with awesome podcasters, look no further than the Two True Freaks Network. But just a few shout-outs, and there will be more to come down the road. But now it's time to take a quick break and play a podcast promo. And when we come back, Electra begins.
Trenis Magnus punches reality. Comics, movies, and TV shows. Trenis Magnus punches reality. The People's Geeky Podcast. Trenis Magnus punches reality. Celebrating 50 ball-smashing episodes. Trenis Magnus punches reality. Episode 50, coming July 1st, 2014. Only at twotruefreaks.com. I'm not kidding around either. If I ever find out my show's been syndicated on some other podcast network without my permission, I'll sue a mother. Electra. She's become kind of a Marvel mainstay in her own right. She's carried three ongoing series, and in fact, there's a new ongoing series starting this week. So go out to your local comic shop and take a look at Electra number one. She was key to Secret Invasion, featured in the Daredevil movie, and she kind of had a solo movie. I still haven't gotten around to that movie yet. But she was originally, supposedly, meant to have one and only one appearance in a filler story in this week's issue. At least that's the urban legend. I don't entirely buy into that, but I don't think Miller had a full plan when he put her in. I just think that there's something about her that drew Miller in. He saw potential. Now, the issue in question is Daredevil 168, and it was cover dated January 1981. The new Teen Titans were on stands, thanks to George Perez and Marv Wolfman, and X-Men were still burning the charts up with the legendary tale, Days of Future Past, of which the upcoming movie took its core concept and name, and regrettably, it looks like nothing more than those two things. The 80s, as we remember them for comics, was starting to take off. The Age of Greed was seeping into the books. The Dirty Harry series of movies was between its third installment, The Enforcer, and its fourth, Sudden Impact. The Death Wish series of movies was in force, and the gritty cop movie and vigilante drama was becoming a little bit more prevalent. And Kung Fu was becoming a bit more of an element in mainstream movies. Well, who better to take these genres, combine them with a superhero, and make magic with than Daredevil? His template's pretty ripe for that. Now sure, these elements had been in film, but let's be honest, from Dirty Harry to John McClane to Martin Riggs and Roger Murtaugh and Axel Foley, action was huge in the 80s. So after almost 20 years, the Spider-Man knockoff was headed down a more hard-edged path than he had seen before. And here is the first real step into that world, Daredevil, number 168. And now, I've said that the cover was iconic, and I'm sure nobody's having trouble picturing it. It's right there in your forefront. The Stormy Night, the Unconscious Man in Daredevil's Clutches... The surprised look on Daredevil's face as a female figure is outlined in the bolts of lightning in the sky. Those twin sides glinting in the crackling light and the distinctive silhouette of Elektra standing on the posts of the dock. But does anyone, picturing this in your head now, does anyone remember the big goof on this cover? There is one. It's in the text box, which reads, Elektra, once he loved her, now she is his most deadly enemy. Now some of you will talk to your iPod from memory. Some of you are talking to me right now. Some of you will Google the cover. But the big goof is this, Electra's name is spelled wrong, which is kind of funny, because technically, spelling it with the letter K is quote-unquote incorrect from the Greek myth. But on the cover, it's goofed even further because it's spelled with both a C and a K. Now, the myth spelled it strictly with the C, Miller decided to switch that with a distinctive K, the cover just couldn't make that decision, I guess. Wanted to have its cake and eat it too. 
but it doesn't spoil the cover's impact. And let's be honest, I'm going to be completely honest, the impact of this cover is largely historical. I mean, let's look at this. The cover was on stands alongside an X-Men cover by John Byrne, which featured a grizzled Wolverine in front of a wall of posters showing familiar characters wanted or dead. I mean, let's be fair, Daredevil was kind of upstaged this month. I mean, the cover nails it, but if your hard-earned money was going to be spent on something, it was probably going to be X-Men. Now, of course, the year or so of comics that lay ahead retroactively catapulted this issue to icon status, and it's remained there ever since. And should it seem that I'm not giving the cover its due, let's be fair, does anybody think that the cover to Incredible Hulk 181 really made waves until Wolverine became a mutant megastar? Sometimes the gems are right in front of us, and we don't know it until way later. But, what's the story inside? Well, I'm really glad you asked. The story is simply entitled Electra. It was written in pencil by Frank Miller, with inks by Klaus Janssen, letters were by Joseph Rosen, with colors by D.R. Martin. And we open on a rainy night in New York, with a blind man on a street corner selling pencils. But, this isn't just any blind man, nor is it actually a blind man, it's Turk. That means he can see clearly when Daredevil swoops in to ask for information. Daredevil is searching for a thief named Aldrich Wallenquist. Wallenquist witnessed a murder and can free the innocent man who is accused of the killing. But Wallenquist is currently being hidden by Turk's boss, Eric Slaughter. Remember Slaughter? Turk sicks his dog on Daredevil and the pooch doesn't prove much of a challenge, but the noise wakes up a sleeping man on the ground nearby. Like Turk, this man is not what he seems. Slaughter sent him to make sure that Turk stays quiet, which Turk is about to stop being quiet and spill his guts thanks to Daredevil's fists. The man throws an explosive at Turk and Daredevil, and the man without fear barely manages to save them from the big boom that follows. Moments later, a disoriented Daredevil catches up with the bomber in a back alley and begins to pump him for information. Now that sounded rude. Unknown to Daredevil, as his prey is beginning to talk, they are being watched by a scarlet-clad figure perched on a clothesline. Daredevil senses nothing until the handle of a sigh hits him in the back of the head, and the woman swoops down and delivers a strong kick to Daredevil's face. Ooh, in the face! The woman tells Daredevil that there is a bounty on Wallenquist's head, and she intends to collect, as she takes the stool pigeon away. And just before Daredevil passes out from the blows, he recognizes her voice and says only her name. Electra. With those five pages, Elektra storms onto the scene and leaves a pretty noticeable mark, but Miller also makes a noticeable debut as the writer. In two pages, we have the basic setup. Wallenquist is needed to clear a murder suspect. Slaughter is hiding Wallenquist. Pretty straightforward. So first stop is Turk, who is channeling Eddie Murphy from trading places and pretending to be a poor blind man. I would like to think, with a small bit of irony, that a scam like this requires vision. Of course, Turk, well, vision he's got. My biggest and most pleasant surprise when reading the omnibus was the fact that Miller didn't just come in, wipe the slate clean, and do his own thing. He picks up on Slaughter and Turk and uses the tools that have been laid before him as far as story components. We jump right in, it's brisk, it looks awesome. Miller has released some of his restraint as far as art, and he's begun letting the shadows take over and the rain effects are coming in. The pencils are rougher edged, the lighting effects are expertly executed thanks to having the scene lit by a single street lamp. The mood is tense, it's dark, you're on board from page one. Now of course Turk being Turk lends some lighter fare to a dark scene. And just when you think you've got the story beats figured out, Electra shows up. No, that's not true actually, is it? She doesn't just show up. I mean, she kind of saunters in and owns Daredevil outright in two panels. And bear in mind, we have a context for Elektra as modern readers. No matter how hard we try to see her for the first time, quote-unquote, we know where this is going, sure. Readers of the 80s sure didn't. 
Out of nowhere is this lady who is a complete badass and overtakes Daredevil. A woman playing a man's game of bounty hunting? And apparently Daredevil knows her. What casual reader wouldn't be enticed to pick this issue up? This is unlike any issue of Daredevil that has come before. This is a new twist. It's fresh. And now, sure, we see it all the time. We have Typhoid Mary, Echo. They did it, but here's the template. I mean, even when Black Widow appeared, it was to save Daredevil, not go head-to-head -head with him. That's not lie. Natasha could definitely give Matt a run for his money, but we still got a team-up out of that. And yet, here we are. Daredevil's down and out. His mission to find Wallenquist is up the creek without a billy club and some strange ninja chicks running around New York. Okay, so now you're thinking what I'm thinking. We're in for some high-octane action. Things are going to kick it up a notch, right? Right? No. Actually, as Daredevil is out, he has a flashback. We fall into a flashback to Matt Murdock in college at Columbia University, where Matt and Foggy are leaving the library. Foggy drops his books, and while Matt begins to help him pick them up, the dean of college walks down the steps and admonishes Foggy for the clumsiness. The dean is escorting a new and very important student, the daughter of a Greek ambassador, Electra Nachios. Matt tries to talk to Electra, but her bodyguard, Athos, gives Matt a solid shove and stops that interaction just right out of the gate. But Matt is smitten, so he devises this way to distract Athos one day and tries to give Electra a rose. She tries to rebuff him, but Matt is persistent and shows Electra that he is capable of awesome things despite being blind, so he reveals his gifted senses. So he asks Electra to give him a shot, and she tells him to come for her at eight. And so begins this whirlwind romance with the two falling in love, which comes to a tragic end, as they usually do in this book. Matt arrives at the administration building sometime later to find a group of terrorists are holding hostages, including Electra and her father. Using a scarf that he intended to give to Electra as a mask, he makes his way to the building and to the hostages. He sees Electra is held, so he uses this signal, hit him low, olive oil, and Matt coordinates an attack with her, which is successful, save for one of the terrorists taking a spill out a window, which is kind of a theme, isn't it? This makes the police believe that the hostages are being killed, and when Electra's father tries to get to his feet, the cops shoot him down through the window. Sadly, Electra's father dies of his wounds, but even through her grieving, Electra does not cry. She never cries. She doesn't cry as she leaves New York and Matt to return home because she just doesn't believe in the system anymore and she needs a purpose. But as Elector walks out on him, Matt sure as heck sheds big old fat man tears. Now, before I dig into this bit of the issue, I need to preface this just so we have context as I'm going to be bringing out Man Without Fear. So we're all on the same page. Let's just point out Frank Miller wrote both pieces. He wrote this issue and Man Without Fear. Now the comparison that we're about to dive into that I warned you about a long time ago, is not like comparing an origin where Frank Miller only drew it to one that he wrote. Same guy, both ways. So, we covered that origin done by McKenzie, or Redux of the Origin. Now we're going to be looking at something that's from the same cloth. Now, with that distinction made abundantly clear, I'm going to reopen Man Without Fear number two and Man Without Fear number three once again, as warned. I told you we were coming back to them. In this, the original depiction of Matt meeting Electra we have a fairly mundane encounter on the library steps. Nothing really exciting, it's not saving a space plane or anything on that level, just two kids in happenstance. But in Man Without Fear, they meet above the city on the rooftops. A little bit of a cat and mouse ensues, if you remember, which ended up with Electra tricking Matt, and he got in trouble by being caught in the park. Luckily, he got out of it because he was blind. Both are kind of a swing and a miss for Matt. But the rooftop chase, of course, comes off as a bit more exciting. But 
they don't cancel each other out. And I know what you're thinking. Am I trying to be an apologist? Am I trying to mesh this? A little bit, because it's coming from the same writer. And admittedly, Miller just really isn't big on continuity, but you'd think he would be faithful to his own writing. But I have discovered that with this, both could reasonably be in play, with neither realizing that the other incident is related, except that Matt makes a note about Electra's scent in both, which does make that a stretch, but as much as I would like the two to peacefully coexist, the scent would, at first glance, pretty much knock out that, depending on which order they occur in. That's where my thought process kind of kicked in. That's where the fun is beginning. In the rooftop chase, if that happened first... This mundane meeting in issue 168 is actually really enhanced and makes the scene cooler. So, in Man Without Fear, Matt was chasing a scent, and that ended badly. How much richer is this scene with Matt recognizing the perfume rather than just noticing it? Taking that into account, this becomes a very awesome bit of continuity. It really makes this issue pop out for me. So I'm going to put that in the wind column. Essentially, Matt did the rooftop chase. There was a scent there. He meets Electra and starts putting the pieces together that she's not what she seems. And then I thought this is going to fall apart. These two just aren't going to jive with the next segment. Because we see Matt getting Electra alone and trying to woo her, which includes showing her how his senses work. This scene, I thought, was it's a bit of a wash. This is the wall we're hitting. My thought process went, firstly, if the rooftop chase has occurred, Electra knows about his abilities, which makes this scene a bit more fun. So it does work up to that point. What if Electra is just playing with Matt's head again? She knows essentially who he is and what he can do, but Matt isn't fully aware of her. He doesn't know that she knows. She's got the advantage, which is kind of where Electra wants to be. Again, this is fun. She knows he can do this stuff. She knows what he's all about to some extent. He knows she's capable of stuff, but doesn't know that she knows. Now, before moving forward a bit to where these two works really stop complimenting each other completely and begin causing a little bit of headache, I want to comment on something. Miller is once again using real landmarks for his scenes, including the scene on the steps of Columbia University's library. Clearly seen as the statue on the steps that depicts a woman on a throne with a big book open in her lap and a scepter in her hand. This is the college seal, and it symbolizes a nourishing mother referred to as an alma mater, which is a Roman term. The term also applies to Roman goddesses. The second statue depicted is behind Matt and Electra as they're talking, and it depicts Pan, the Greek god, and Satyr. He has goat legs, that's what a satyr is. Pan originated as the god of the fields and the woods, but he's used to symbolize fertility and spring. Aww, what a, what, a, what a cute addition to the scene of budding love, you see? See what he did? Not only do these landmarks tie this to a real-world location, but Pan kind of symbolizes this spring and the birth of this new love. Spring's a great allegory, don't get me wrong, but it causes problems with the next bit. Because within the context of this issue, we jump to a montage of Matt and Electra being in love, being carefree and happy. In Man Without Fear, the next time they meet, it's the dead of winter, as far from spring as you can get. And after the nighttime rooftop shenanigans, Electra rolls up in the convertible, and Matt goes for a crazy ride, which ends with her jumping off of a cliff. Remember that? Now this comes apart. I thought this was shattering. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense at first glance. Matt doesn't even know Electra's name in Man Without Fear, but let's play with this a bit. Electra says that Matt should come for her at 8. Now picture the scene where Matt is turned away by Electra's father, or Athos, and the next time he sees Electra, it's a couple of months into the term, it's snowing, he hops right in where she reveals the other side of her. She's not the demure girl Matt was trying to woo, but a force of chaos, and suddenly, well now Matt's really intrigued, right up to the point where she leaps off of a cliff. He could do without that. But Matt has had enough of both aspects of Electra. Really, he's just had it, 
It leads to him breaking into the Nachos Mansion, everything that ensues, including the sexcapade in the dorm from Man Without Fear number three. Let's not forget that. Now, outside of Electra being crazy, both move into a love story montage mode at that point. Now, I hear you. I can hear you as you're speaking to your MP3 player, and I see you when you roll your eyes, but I have prepared for this moment since covering Man Without Fear number three. I've come in fully loaded. Yes, it does come apart at the surface, but here's the catch. With this issue, the flashback is playing out in Matt's mind as he's laying unconscious on the ground. The depiction here is all from Matt's perspective. It's a first-person narrative, so to speak. In Man Without Fear, it feels like a kind of warts-and-all retelling, including Elektra trying to confess her murderous ways. Remember, that was a confession that Matt disregarded. I mean, Matt was pretty well Twitter-pated with Elektra, and when we are Twitter-pated, we tend to overlook flaws and vices that become apparent later. Matt ignoring the confession makes me wonder if Frank decided to give himself a little bit of an out. A very subtle out, a little bit of a leeway in continuity. On one hand, it allows him to retcon the story a bit with a simple tool to explain the incongruities. On the other, it opens a scary aspect to Matt's personality. For example, Matt remembers Jack Murdoch as being the greatest dad on Earth. Yet, we see him slapping Matt, being a bit hard to live with. Jack Murdoch may have been a good man, but he definitely was not Ward Cleaver. So I wonder, does Matt idealize people? I mean, that would kind of explain some of his idealistic views on his clients, even some of the villains he faces, and we're going to see a lot of this next week. Maybe Matt is blind in more ways than one. It's not that he completely ignores the problems and fallibilities of those around him, but he glosses over them. He sees some of the quote-unquote inner beauty, and that works. I mean, he's blind. I get the allegory. I think it speaks for itself. But Miller not only gives us the multi-tool to join the original issue up, but also kind of gives us a very unique take on Matt Murdock's personality, his psychology. So to boil that down to a simple thesis, these two can fit or not, depending on the reader's interpretation. You can put a chronology together that they met on the rooftops. They met once again on the steps. Matt went to woo her, said, come for me at eight. Matt got tired of her crap. And, what a, and then next time he saw her, he jumped in the car with her, wackiness ensued. So we have the piece of the puzzle, we just can do whatever we want with it. We can choose to disregard it or regard it, or you could just look at it as Miller really just wanted to write a standalone story with Man Without Fear. But it can be read alongside this run. It serves as an optional companion. But that idea of Matt idealizing things, you know, it was just a small thread, but as I started to pull it, it puts the character in a little bit of a new perspective. It's not that we didn't think he was idealistic, because he's a superhero, just... By nature of what he does, he's already idealistic. But look at Man Without Fear playing with that a bit. Mickey was this kid who blatantly lied to Matt. And yet somehow he looks at her as an untarnished, innocent child. Hell's Kitchen. A rough, worn-down neighborhood full of crime. But Daredevil fights relentlessly to save it because to him, it's his home, it's his heart. Matt's blindness washes the world clean for him. Now it's something to kind of put on the board and, and look at again as we go through this read-through. And just looking at the character of Matt Murdock. So I'm going to put that there for the moment because I'm not going to extrapolate on that too much. Next week is really going to be something that this can springboard off of. Because of some choices that are made. But I'm not going to get into next week when we need to get back to the story this week. Daredevil wakes up from his daydream and puts together that Elektra has become a bounty hunter. Huh? And though it pains him greatly, he's going to have to face her and bring her in. Meanwhile, 
Electra has muscled her captive into calling Slaughter and confirming that a seaplane is coming to retrieve Wallenquist. But he gives Slaughter the wrong time to tip him off and Slaughter begins to make contingency plans since he knows Electra has pretty much invaded his operation. Meanwhile, Daredevil grabs Slaughter's right-hand man, Mickey. Not that Mickey. While he's on a cigar run and makes Mickey sing. Later at the dock, Slaughter and his men await the seaplane, but Electra arrives and pretty much obliterates Slaughter's hired men. But Wallenquist tags Electra with a sedative laced dart from a blowgun and she passes out. As Slaughter is about to throw the unconscious Electra into the drink, the seaplane comes alive and slams into the docks. From the flames comes Daredevil and he begins tearing up the place of something fierce, but is abruptly stopped when Wallenquist puts a gun to Electra's head. Daredevil pretends to walk away, knowing that Wallenquist was. Well, he's going to put a bullet in somebody's head. Daredevils are Electras. Luckily, Electra stirs, and Daredevil calls out, Hit him low, olive oil. See, that came back. Just as he expertly throws his billy club. Electra receives the signal and kicks Wallenquist as the billy club simultaneously strikes him. Daredevil unties Electra, and she realizes that it's Matt. And a kiss nearly happens. But Daredevil simply throws Wallenquist over his shoulder and walks away without looking back or uttering a word. And for the first time, Electra cries. So... The issue ends, and upon waking, Matt's put a lot of things together. Not only that this is Electra, but she went on to become an international bounty hunter, and let's be honest, that's kind of a bit of a leap. I mean, Electra stated that she was looking for the bounty on Wallenquist, but that line of dialogue takes a moment to recall after the flashback and left me trying to put the pieces together. How, how did Daredevil put this together? He had a head injury, after all. But the fact that Electra took a moment to bandage the shoulder that Dee Dee injured in the explosion was a nice touch. She's not completely ruthless. She just has a job to do, which is why Daredevil took the handle of the scythe to the head, not the blade. Now, the scythe, which is Electra's weapon of choice. I know what you're thinking. First thing you're going to think, first thing I would think. Most of us who grew up in the 80s will immediately go to Raphael of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because he used a pair of scythe. Well, Electra is the reason for that, pretty directly. And I watched a few tutorial videos on the side. The three prongs are used pretty fluidly to disarm, to block, to make solid blows. It's a really interesting weapon. And I wish I knew more about martial arts to share that with you. But unfortunately, I don't. Now, influences. Miller reportedly based Electra's appearance on female bodybuilder Lisa Lyon. And the likeness is a pretty good one from what I saw. One quick word of warning. Do not Google her before hearing this. Googling her can be NSFW. She did some artsy, tasteful nude photos. And while we're adults... That rarely sits well with human resources, so please use caution when Googling. Now the name Electra, as I kind of mentioned at the top, it comes from a Greek tragedy of the same name in which the title character vows revenge for her father's murder. It's a very Hamlet-esque story. Electra's father, Agamemnon, was murdered by his wife and her lover. Electra and her brother created a plot, including her brother's fake death, to exact murderous revenge. Now the analog is pretty clear here. Electra's father died, she lost faith and purpose, and found that purpose again by collecting bounties on bad guys. So, she's named after a Greek tragedy, which of course paints a rosy outlook for Electra. All I'm saying is if I were a father, I would probably think twice about naming my daughter Electra, because it doesn't bode well for me. Back to the story a bit. Daredevil has this awesome moment of getting Mickey to talk by dropping him off of a roof and then catching him with the billy club, which seems effective and a bit sadistic, and it works, despite Daredevil's rep of not killing. And then we come to the standoff, the big part of the story, which mirrors, of course, the death of Electra's father. It's pretty intense. But the most awesome thing isn't the synchronized attack, it's the fact that the billy club banks off one post, then another, and then hits Wallenquist from behind as Electra hits him from the front. Daredevil has his back turned the whole time. And you know what? Hey, screw that guy. If you can't throw a billy club at life's problems, who needs life? But joking aside, here's the kicker for me. 
It's the last page, which seals the tragedy. Electra realizes that it's Matt, and there is this kiss, or this almost kiss. And until this reading, I think I've been reading this scene all wrong for many years. Originally, I saw it as a mutual, very chaste kiss, more of a how you doing, more out of old habits than actual emotion. And Electra's reaction was because she realized how far she had fallen in Matt's opinion. But that's not what happens. When Electra realizes it's Matt, she reflexively kisses him. She thinks that the costume, his line of work, all of that means they can be together. They're simpatico. Because he's not part of the system that she's opposing. This rigid law that took her father away. But Matt doesn't return the kiss. Matt just stands there and he's all cold. So now I realize that she knows Matt disapproves of her, of how far she's fallen. Which, I mean, the same conclusion, but it's a little bit more harsh. But that final image of Electra on her knees in the rain, crying with her face in her hands, becomes more of a punch in the gut. Fittingly, like Bullseye, Electra came into the story fully loaded for her role, even though the prevailing sentiment was that she was created for the one-off. I think by the time he got to the end of this issue, Miller was already on board with this character. He had ideas. He had vision. I mean, a former lover turned bounty hunter... A character that plays right in the middle of Daredevil's rules and Bullseye's chaos? I'm sorry, there's just too much there to mine. Just way too much. You're not going to shuffle this character off as a one-off when it's just ripe. But the debut sets up a strong paradigm for Miller's reign as writer and artist, thanks to his moody crack to the jaw. Proverbial crack, I should say. Miller really amped up the dark mood for the present day. And then he gave us a fresh, bright look for the flashbacks. More than anything, it gives us a perspective of how far down this superhero rabbit hole Matt has gone. How far away he is from a normal life. And of course, it gets deeper from here. So this was just a strong, strong debut. And definitely a direction changer for the book. But it doesn't uproot the book from what's come before. It's an organic turn. It's not a sudden 180 onto a one-way street. It's a very calm right-hand turn. And suddenly we're in a direction that's really got me excited for what's to come. And, you know, if you want to read this issue, it's available on Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. It's also available in the Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2 trade paperback. The Elektra Official Movie Adaptation trade paperback. Yes, let's rush out and get that one. Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus. And I highly recommend looking at this hugely relevant piece of Daredevil story. Yes, as Andrew Leyland said, this borders on cliché, but man, when it's cliché, there's got to be some element of truth to that, right? But, as we're kind of running over on time a little bit, that wraps up episode 25. Next week, Bullseye returns in Daredevil 169, and he's completely crazy now. As in, more than before, which also makes him deadlier. So be with me in seven days as Daredevil makes some hard choices. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast. 
on Twitter with the username at DaveWeeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Tonight, they're there for fun.